So if you were with us last week, um, uh, you know that Noah spent about 380 days on the ark, give or take a few. I was kind of doing the calculations this week. Um, so I'm not going to be exact on that. Uh, but nowhere in, in, nowhere in any accounts in Genesis um, that we've gone over up until now, Genesis 1 through, through up till Noah's account, did God, you know, feel the need to provide this exact information down to the month and the, the years and the days? But in this account, he provides very detailed accounting of years, months, and even down to the very days themselves. And, um, and I think that's just interesting. It's just, I mean, he gets down to the very day, and uh, that, that's amazing. And I think we all saw from last week that God is a God who remembered Noah, and I put remembered in quotes, air quotes, because as uh, David reminded us, it's not, it's not remembered in the sense that where God forgot about him and was like, oh yeah, that guy, he's still on that boat down there. Um, but uh, it's in the sense to where what that tells me is that God was always intimately aware of what was going on in Noah's life. And um, I think that the details of the times, um, what we can learn from this is that God is showing us that he is intimately involved in not just the details of Noah's life, but he's intimately involved in the details of our lives. Um, and uh, even really down to the very minutes of our lives. And um, I imagine if he was writing a story about you in a book, that um, he'd be able to be that exact. So for example, if he was writing a story about me, he could, he could, write, it, he could write it in this way in one of the chapters. He could say, Andy, in the 18th year of his life, in the 12th month, on the 24th day of the month, called out to me and asked me to save him. And that would be just one little sliver of a chapter in my life. And he would know that. <clears throat> so even after the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and uh, those are pretty tall mountains. Um, I think Mount Ararat, or there is a Mount Ararat, which is, I think, about 16,000 feet. So I picture these mountains being like the... Uh, Rocky Mountains type uh, in tallness. Um, um, we can calculate that from the first moment that Noah and his family felt their boat run against some ground, which the Bible says that was on the 17th day of the seventh month, it was still about 210 days later before God gave Noah the green light to go out from the ark, which was the 27th day of the second month, which in the Jewish calendar would have been about the 27th of November. So you think about it, that, that wouldn't have been a very good time to go out uh, if you're in the mountains, right? Probably would have been pretty cold at that point in time. But the good news is, um, in our calendar, that's really about the May to June time frame. So you're just, you're just beginning summer, okay? And... Um, so since they landed in the mountains, they were probably above the tree line. I mean, this is just conjecture on my point, but I mean, those are very tall mountains like the Rocky Mountains. And as that boat, the water's settling, it probably was somewhere above the tree line. Um, so, um, so it wouldn't have been winter if it's in the May to June timeframe. Uh, that would have been a whole nother problem. But of course, God knew the details of that too. So I mean, they landed at a good time. Um, so think about that. Even after feeling the boat hit ground, I mean, 
there could have been in their hearts like, yes, yes, we hit ground. But then they had to stay in that boat for 210 more days. Um, do you think they may have been getting a little cabin fever? Um, how many have you have ever been on a cruise? Okay. I, I never have. But um, how many of you enjoyed the cruise that you, when you went on one? I mean, so I've talked to some people that have experienced. Some people are like, well, it wasn't that great. But um, so, so you enjoyed the cruise. That's great. Um, AJ, I'll ask you. Um, would you have liked to have been on that boat for 210 days, you think? Okay. So you enjoyed the cruise for like maybe three, four, five, or seven days, but you wouldn't have liked to have been on the boat for 210 days. Well, actually, they were on that boat for over a year. So it wasn't just 210 days. But uh, so anyway, that's what I'm talking about. So if you put yourself in their shoes. Um, so after I graduated from college, I got a job in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, my parents, uh, my stepfather got transferred to California. So, um, and that's where I'm from, the Washington, D.C. area. So um, I couldn't move back in with them. But I had an aunt that lived over in, in Northern Virginia, in Fairfax. And so... Uh, she was my mom's sister. So um, I moved in with her, and um, she made dinner for me every night. I'd come home from work, and there'd be dinner there. She washed my clothes. She pressed my clothes. Um, uh, she bought all my favorite foods. I mean, it was, it was like a five-star hotel with, with a personal um, concierge. And... Um, I'll just say life was really good at that point. Um, uh, the church uh, that I was going to at the time, there were a number of single adults in the church, and uh, the leadership of the church encouraged the single adults to, to, to room together because they knew it would make for good opportunities for building character um, and be good preparation for marriage. You might say, like, well, why, why did they do that, you know? Um, well, because whenever you get any number of selfish people to live under the same roof, um, sparks are going to fly. Um, uh, there's good opportunities for growing in humility. And um, so after about four months with my aunt, where life was good, um, I ended up uh, renting a house with uh, three other guys. And uh, we, uh, it was a four-bedroom house, so we all had a bedroom. But all of a sudden, uh, life took a turn for the worst. And um, so I'd end up, you know, we'd have one washer and dryer. Guys would leave their clothes in the washing machine for two days. And you're like, what's up with this? I mean, like, can't you just, like, get your clothes out of here so that someone else can use it? And then, and then they'd leave their clothes in the dryer. And you're like, look, just get them out of the dryer so that someone else can use it. And then... We, we had a, a, a regimen for, um, you know, kitchen duty. They'd leave dirty dishes in the sink, you know, and it was their turn. So during that time, God had plenty of opportunities to say, why don't you get that guy's clothes out of the dryer and fold them nicely and put them on his bed? Why don't, why don't you clean those dishes in the sink, even though it's not your turn, you know? And... Um, so God used that time to prepare me really for marriage even, right? I mean, because everybody's not perfect in a marriage relationship. And, uh, and uh, so 
there were plenty of opportunities for me to learn um, how to love and serve my brothers. And um, so I'm thinking that maybe Noah's family needed 210 days of training in the ark to be the family he needed them to be to reset God's heritage on the earth. And I'm sure that they had plenty of opportunities in that, in that closed ark to learn those things as they were, you know, um, living together. Um, hey, it's your turn, Ham, to clean up all the, the mess, you know, that those animals made, you know, or, and then Ham might not do it. So the other brother, you know, God could have opportunity to speak to him, say, why don't you do it then? Um, so maybe some of you are in a proverbial arc right now, and you've been waiting and waiting for God to give the green light to get out, but it seems like he is preventing the waters from receding um, all the way in your own life, and the timing is not quite there. Uh, may we all learn from this story that God knows the exact year and the exact month and the exact day to turn the page, and that he knows that he has you exactly in that situation for a reason, and he, and he knows the timing of when to get you out of that situation. Um, <clears throat> so as I was thinking about this more this week, um, have any of you ever seen the after effects of a flood? I've never really, um, like, been in a... You have, Earl? I mean, Dan, Dan I know. <laughs> uh, where was that? Was that around here? Okay. Okay. So I imagine it, it looked like a lot of devastation. Um, I've only seen pictures. Um, but I think that to really appreciate this story um, and Noah getting off the ark, um, we, we need to take a few minutes and just put ourselves in the shoes of Noah and his family. Um, that you've got to think when they stepped off the ark that it was probably like they stepped into a different, onto a different planet. Um, uh, David mentioned last week that probably part of the reason that God kept them in the ark for so long was so that he could um, get, you know, vegetation start growing and things of that nature to sustain the earth. Um, but I'm, I would dare say it probably didn't look like the Amazon rainforest quite yet, you know. Um, and so... Um, and plus, they were, they were up in, in the mountains. Um, uh, it, it probably, um, Noah, I'm not sure, we, it, the Bible doesn't really say, but I would, did, just based on a guess, I feel like he probably lived near, you know, population. I don't feel like he um, lived way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I'll talk about this later because the, the, and Peter talks about him being a preacher of righteousness, so there needed to be people for him to, to preach to. So I don't think that he just like was way out in the middle of nowhere building this boat. Um, and so he, he might have lived in the plains or in a valley, somewhere there was where it was lush, um, it was green. Um, and now where the ark lands, he is in this mountainous region, uh, probably above the timberline I mentioned. Perhaps he even sees some snow-capped mountains around him for the first time. Um, they may even have had to see the remains of skeletons or dead carcasses, um, of dead carcasses or even humans, you know, uh, on the ground. Um, 
there are no people on the entire earth except them. Um, can you imagine how lonely it would feel knowing you step off of this ark and you know that like, I mean, I don't think we can really even understand it, but to know that you are the only people on the entire earth, that would be a really eerie feeling. Um, uh, needless to say, this was not something that they could have anticipated. So um, before we get into chapter nine, I wanna just set the stage to ask the question, what does Noah do in this situation? You know, when he gets off the ark. Because I think that some of you are in situations like this here this morning, where you can relate to Noah. You find yourself in a situation or a setting or an environment that is totally different than you ever imagined in your life. Um, if you look back at other seasons in your life, you may say that there are other seasons that you would much prefer, but now you find yourself in a setting or in an environment or in a season of your life that is less than what you would desire. Um, I know that when, when um, well, we still have Troy in the house, but uh, so it's, 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 it's our house is, the dynamics of our house are a lot different because it's like having a, um, a single child versus, you know, when we had all, the, all of them in, in the house. And so that's a different season, and it's, it's different than what I anticipated. Um, and it, it's, it was, it's not what I expected. Um, uh, not in a bad way, Troy, but um, just, God, it, it, just, it was just a different season. Um, and it's new, and it's different. Um, in some of your situations, you may consider it a harsher reality for you than what you wanted it to be. Um, and the question for you today is, what do you do with that situation? Um, so before we start into chapter 9, we have to see the context of how Noah responds to his situation in chapter 8. Okay, so <clears throat> if you guys will just... Um, just get your Bibles open to around there, chapter 8 and 9. We're going to look at the end of chapter 8 as we go into chapter 9 because <clears throat> I don't want us to miss that they flow together, you know, even though, you know, we put numbers in our Bible, 8, 9, you know, they, they really flow together, okay? So here's what Noah does, and this is the amazing thing about this man of faith that we can learn from. He gets off the ark, and he doesn't understand the world in which he lives. He doesn't understand what's going to happen, right? He doesn't know how it's all going to work out. He no doubt has a whole lot more questions than he has answers. But the very first thing he does, recorded in Scripture anyway, is he builds an altar and he worships the Lord. Um, and not only does he worship the Lord, he does so in a very lavish, extravagant way. He literally... I mean, from uh, just uh, knowing that there were, there were so many animals on that boat and he took seven of all the unclean animals and birds, um, he probably sacrificed hundreds of animals here and birds. Um, and if, because there were seven of, of all the different um, clean ones that he took. And of all people, uh, Noah knew that he had a limited number of animals to work with. And um, so think about 
what was going, could have been going through his mind at this time, after he gets off the ark, the door opens, and he's like, um, I don't see a lot of food necessarily around here. Um, uh, I better not be too generous in my offerings because um, I've got all these animals that need to eat. I've got my family that I need to feed. And um, if I'm not careful here, uh, we're going to run out of food. Um, but that's not Noah's thinking. Noah is not preserving what he has. He's giving away what he has to the Lord in sacrifices. And Noah's act of worship is where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 9. And so I really wanted to lay that groundwork from last week because I think it significantly has applications that we will draw out of chapter 9. So um, I'm just going to, uh, if you follow with me, we'll read uh, the portion of chapter 9 this morning that we're going to um, discuss. Okay, so we'll start in verses 1 and read through verse 17. <clears throat> and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So what do we see here? <clears throat> Keep in mind that just because you have, well, I mentioned that, the nine here that... Um, in my understanding, these words God is speaking is just a continuation of Noah's worship with the Lord. Um, so one of the first points I want to, us to see is, in God's presence, Noah came to know God's plans. 
As Noah was worshiping God, God revealed his heart and his mind to Noah. And this is an important takeaway for us today, because when Noah stepped off the boat and perhaps was immediately hit with a wall of uncertainty, he worshiped God and God revealed his heart and mind to Noah. So as I talked earlier about situations that we might be faced with today, where we have uncertainties and doubts, um, when we are in those situations, what do we do? And I think one of the answers that we can see from this passage is we should do what Noah did, and we should purpose to enter into God's presence and not hold anything back from him. Because um, what's the alternative? And I was just thinking about um, the alternative of what I... I don't always do what Noah did, right? And I'm sure that we don't either. So the alternative, if you're like me, is... You don't do what Noah did, and then you find yourself in these situations and you feel trapped and you feel paralyzed and you get defeated and you are discouraged and you feel depressed. Um, and that can go on for long periods of time. Uh, but I want to point out something that I hope that I um, you know, noticed in this passage that, um, that I hope will motivate us to do just this very thing Noah did when we are in these situations, rather than stay paralyzed and uh, defeated and depressed or fill in the blank, however you might respond um, in these situations. And, uh, and this, is really, um, this is really amazing to me. Um, so this is what I wanted to share. So if you go back to um, chapter 8, and we're going to start in, in verse 20. And I'm not going to read re-preach David's message, but I just want to, I just want to like carry over from uh, the end of, of eight into nine to kind of uh, point something out here. So as we mentioned, you know, according to scripture here, they got off the ark and then this is the first thing recorded that Noah did. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart. I want to just like kind of highlight those words. Said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So God is seeing what Noah is doing, and God is pleased with what Noah is doing, and God is thinking these things, okay? He's not vocalizing this to Noah. He's just think, thinking these things in his heart. So God is thinking these things in his heart here in chapter 8, that in chapter 9, he's going to express verbally to Noah. So it's in God's presence where Noah is worshiping God, and God is pleased with what Noah is doing, and that God's heart is revealed, as we see it in Scripture here, and then God reveals his heart to Noah in chapter 9. And I think that's similar to verses like Psalm 46.10, says, Be still and know that I am God. The verse in Jeremiah where it says, The eyes of the Lord look to and fro to see whose heart is completely his. Um, do you want to be a person who has that kind of intimacy with the Lord 
such that as you spend time in his presence in private worship, prayer, um, time in the word, that God is saying things in his heart and revealing his heart to you and giving you insight into his thoughts. Um, One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 25, and I'll just read it, but you might want to write it down and look, look, look it up. Um, because it basically is in line with, with what we see happened with God, between God and Noah here. It says, um, Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. And who doesn't need direction in times of uncertainty? I added that in there. It's not, but he will, God will instruct that man in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, and he will pluck my feet out of the net. So when you are in situations where you just don't know what to do, and you need direction, you need guidance, you're just trying to figure it out the best you can, Do you ever take the approach Noah did and just go get some alone time with God? And do you believe that God has thoughts concerning you, concerning your situation, concerning your decision, concerning the direction you need, concerning your circumstance, and according to Psalm 25, that God will give you instruction and direction for your situation? Um, I don't think this is typically our natural response that Noah had. Um, but um, I just want to encourage us this morning that, um, that we would learn to make that our natural response and that God will come through like he did uh, for Noah and, um, and that he will, he will give us that instruction that we need when we are in those times of uncertainty. So Noah is in the midst of worshiping God, okay, and then... Um, perhaps thanking God for saving them, perhaps seeking God for direction as to what to do next. And it's right in this context that the first thing God does is pronounce a blessing on Noah and his sons. That's why I wanted to take the time to kind of go back to chapter 8 before God starts speaking in chapter 9. So the first thing it says in chapter 9 is, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So I'm going to do a little, uh, is it called alliteration where you kind of do the, okay. So I've got five Ps, okay, that um, actually I probably should have said what the title of today's sermon is. It's, um, you know what? God's reassuring grace, okay? So we're going to see five graces that God um, graced Noah and his family with um, after this flood, okay? And they're in the form of these five Ps, okay? So I'm going to call this first one the blessing of procreation, okay? So we've seen this before, right? Um, God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, We saw this in Genesis, at the beginning of Genesis, with Adam and Eve, where God gave this same 
He blessed Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply. Um, But what's interesting about this blessing is that God allows those who love him and even those who don't love him to participate in this blessing. Um, I mean, the, the blessing of procreation is for all. It's for whether you love God, whether you hate God, um, all can participate in this blessing and, um, um, and, and experience the, the benefits of, 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 of having um, offspring to where they might experience uh, the joys of that. <clears throat> and um, in verse 7, though, in this, in this um, pronouncement of blessing that's a little bit different than what happened in Genesis uh, at the beginning of Adam and Eve, in verse 7, he adds this word in here. You can't see it in the ESV, so you'd have to, if other one, others have other translations, um, it says, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Other translations might use the word team. Um, T, I think it's T-E-E-M. Um, team on the earth and multiply in it. Well, that's the same word that was used there of the swarming things in, in Genesis 2 about, you know, the, the, um, the swarming things in the waters. He said for them to, to team, he wanted like these things to just team on the earth. I mean, that there would just be so many of them. And um, so really what he's saying here is, um, he's saying, and you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. And um, uh, he just wanted to see multitudes of people to, to, to cover the earth who bore his image. And um, we don't really hear language like this today, right? We kind of hear the opposite of language like this today. Um, actually, if you'd say something like this today, someone would probably say, what are you talking about? We need to... We need to do the opposite of that because uh, we got an overpopulation problem. Um, so, but I don't think God thinks, thinks that. So I wanted to um, just point out some notions uh, that our culture places on having children. Um, <clears throat> these aren't all the notions that, that are in our culture today, but probably just some of the notions, okay? So I just was looking some things up on Google. But one out there is, I don't want to bring children up into this messed up world, right? And um, if ever anyone had uh, an excuse to say that, right, it would be Noah. I mean, he just came from a messed up world that was filled with violence. And in his mind, he could think like, how do I know that's not going to happen again? Um, God, you're telling me to like, team, you want the earth to team with people. I don't think that's a good idea. I think we need to limit, you know, you, you need to be putting limits on this, you know, because this is not a good idea. Um, so, but that's not what God wanted to do. Um, uh, number two, children are a burden. And I just want to state this morning that children are absolutely unequivocally not a burden. Um, and I wanted to share four verses here. Psalm 127.3 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring are a reward from Him. Um, 
Mark 10, 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Matthew 18, 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Mm. I'm going to share something in a minute. There's just It shows you... This is nothing new, okay? This is nothing new that the world despises these little ones. Nothing new. Um, Proverbs 17, 6. Children's children are a crown to the aged. Okay. Um, a third um, cultural notion. Um, having a child could negatively impact a parent's happiness. Um, a fourth one. Parents tend to be less healthy than non-parents. Um, five, marriages tend to suffer after the birth of a child. Six, friendships inevitably change after the birth of a child, sometimes for the worse. And then seven, having a child contributes to global warming. So I just wanted to put that one in there because... Um, I think the whole climate change thing is obviously in our day, it's getting more and more attention. And I think in the next 10 years, we're going to start to hear more and more about a solution to that being population control. And um, I just wanted to point out, though, that this is nothing new. So it's not, I don't think that it's something that we necessarily need to be alarmed at because it's been around for thousands of years, okay? Um, intelligentsia has been saying the same thing for thousands of years in the 4th century B.C. I mean, that's 4th century B.C. Um, when the world only had a population of less than 200 million, and there's probably 200 million in the United States, I don't even know, but or more, but... Plato and Aristotle recommended strict control of birth rates by the state. Um, and then it won't take long at all when they start talking about population control mechanisms to be preying on aborting the weak. And I just want to share that that's nothing new either. Okay? Um, I got some articles here. Um, this is back in... 427 BC, again, around time of Plato and Socrates. Um, in his Republic, the Greek philosopher Plato records a conversation between the pagan philosopher Socrates and Glaucon, in which Socrates argued that infants which are born with any disability must be killed. Quote, and then, as the children are born, they'll be taken over by the officials appointed for the purpose who may be either men or women or both, since our offices are open to both sexes. Yes, I think they'll take the children of good parents to the nurses in charge of the rearing pen situated in a separate part of the city. But the children of inferior parents or any child of the others that is born defective, they'll hide in a secret and unknown place as is appropriate. It is if indeed the guardian breed is to remain pure." His point was to try to like, I mean, almost like Hitler, right? Like to keep this a pure race of people. And, and, and who decides whether parents are inferior or not, you know? Um, and then this is about 450 BC. The earliest known official Roman law code was made. It was called the Twelve Tables. And the Roman philosopher Cicero 
um, wrote that one of the laws of the 12 tables required that all extremely deformed children should be killed quickly. And this is his quote. Then after it had been quickly killed as the 12 tables direct, that terribly deformed infants shall be killed. And then the 12 tables, the law of the 12 tables also permitted any Roman father to kill any of his newborn female infants, just, you know, to control the population. Okay, and then um, this guy, Seneca, who lived 4 BC to 65 AD, who educated Nero as a child, wrote, quote, mad dogs we knock on the head, the fierce and savage ox we slay, sickly sheep we put to the knife to keep them from infecting the flock, unnatural progeny we destroy. He's talking about children here. We drown, we drown even children who at birth are weakly and abnormal. Yet it is not anger, but reason that separates the harmful from the sound. Seneca justified such murders on the basis of the utilitarian practical argument that these killings were based on the long-term good of the individual and the future welfare of Roman society. There might be some in this room that, that have children that were born weakly. Um, uh, our third child was, we um, had <clears throat> some things where we had to go to the hospital on a number of occasions for some things. Um, those are the type of situations that in that day they would say, we need to take that child and put them to death. So, um, and, and, I, and I'm saying that... Um, this is, this is the type of thing that is starting to gain some traction um, <clears throat> in our day. Um, in fact, what's interesting is I, I was looking up these articles like early in the week, okay, when I, when I, um, when I was looking up this stuff. And, it, and, I, and in my head, I was just going like, you know what? I, I bet someone's going to, they're going to start talking about uh, population control with climate change somewhere along the line. And sure enough, you know, by the end of the week, I guess there was some climate change debate on TV going on. And I saw this news article, and here was the headline from it. Senator Bernie Sanders told CNN's climate change town hall attendees Wednesday night that he is willing to talk about population control, suggesting that abortion is key to addressing the climate crisis. And I just, my jaw dropped because I was like, I was just thinking that someone was going to start saying this. And sure enough, that just came up this week. And someone asked him, would you be courageous enough to discuss this issue and make it a key feature of a plan to address climate catastrophe, she asked. The answer is yes, Sanders said, arguing that population control in the form of abortion and birth control specifically is something he very, very strongly supports. So um, that's just um, that's just heinous. Um, so um, anyway, uh, so what considerations should we have as Christians, as believers, as followers of Christ, with regards to ourselves and children? Um, we should have spiritual considerations, okay? That's the point I want to make from this first P. Um, for example, this is a spiritual consideration, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. As a couple, so, so two, two things I, I want to point out here. As a couple, acknowledge that your bodies are the Lord's. And two, pray for wisdom and direction from God for what he wants you to do, okay? Um, for those who are not married or have lived with infertility or who are past childbearing age, I'd say a takeaway from this passage is to live out the heart of God's commission to be fruitful and multiply. The question for all of us is still, how do you want to be glorified through my body? I mean, we talk about like God owns everything. He owns our money. He owns our this and that. Well, God owns our bodies too. So the question is, God, how do you want to be glorified through our bodies? When I talked about my aunt, she was a widow. Obviously, she was beyond child-raising age. But since my parents lived in California at the time, she acted like a mother to me. God leads some people to adopt. I worked with a single guy who was involved in Big Brothers, the Big Brothers Big Sisters program, and he um, took this uh, sixth grader under his wing and all the way through graduating high school. Um, God led one couple I knew who could not have children to start churches in this country. They started multiple churches in this country and Central America. And um, though they don't have any physical children of their own, they have many, many spiritual children. Um, so I, I wanted to just share um, a story of um, how this worked in, in me and Lisa's life, um, how the Lord directed us. And um, this is just exclusively our story. Um, and I know that I wanted to point out that God leads each individual family to various conclusions as they seek his guidance in this area. Um, this is just how, how God worked in our hearts. Um, but um, I just want to point this out because uh, basically uh, I was seeking what I wanted in our situation regarding children not spiritual considerations, okay? And that's why I wanted to share this story. So when Lisa and I were engaged, um, we, we both, you know, we talked about children and we were, we both kind of thought like, I, I, it was just like a giddy, giddy, like, yeah, let's have 10, we want to have 10 children or something like that. And, um, and so uh, we got married and, um, and she got pregnant, you know, right away. And turns out when she gets pregnant, they're like the worst pregnancies ever. And she has morning sickness like the whole time. She ends up in the hospital, um, dehydrated. And we, it's just very difficult. And um, we need lots of people to help through, well, the first one, I was pretty much able to do it because I just would come home a lot during the day from work at lunchtime, and um, I didn't live, work too far away. Anyway, but after having Aaron, who was the firstborn, <laughs> um, uh, after we had the second one, it was more difficult. We had to rely on other people to, to help out. And anyway, the bottom line is, 
we had four children, and at that point in time, um, Lisa was was like, I, I can't, I can't go through this anymore. It's it's too. I don't have the the physical and emotional constitution to to do this anymore. There, it's it's too difficult, and um, and I think a part of me again, I wasn't seeking. I wasn't seeking God. I wasn't I wasn't um, considering spiritual considerations. I was just thinking, oh gosh, but I wanted to have like like um, like ten kids, you know, or something. I don't know why. Just some stupid thing about like this, I don't know, fairy book thing or something. Anyway, the point was, I was talking with a, a good friend of mine and uh, one day, and I was just sharing my heart with him, and he said, um, Andy, he said, he just looked me in the eyes and said, Andy, um, you know, you say that uh, children are a gift from the Lord. Can I just share something with you? Your wife is a gift from the Lord. And, um, and, and God just hit me between the eyes and, and said, wow, I, I mean, that was the spiritual consideration that I needed right there. It was like, I, I don't even know what I'm, what I'm thinking. You know, I, I'm not even considering what God wants in this situation. So anyway, so, um, you know, we, we made the decision that, that that was it. And, and and I and and God gave me contentment. He we were content, and and, and that was it. And um, um, Lisa had a is it called a tubal, right? You you get your tube side. Okay. So um, actually, no, no. Actually, it was during the fourth pregnancy that we made that decision, so that they could do that after uh, Drew was was born. Yes, and so. So that, yes. So anyway, but anyway, I don't know, maybe it was like a year later that, that Lisa had changed her mind and was like, uh, I, I would like to, you know, reverse this. And so um, we talked long and hard about it because I was just like, I mean, I was completely content with where we were at and... And I was just like, um, I, mm, I don't want you to be making this decision because you think something that I'm thinking or this. I mean, this is, you, don't, you cannot be making this decision like in the flesh or that you're thinking that like, oh, Andy wants this. So no, I'm completely content with where things are at. And so anyway, but she, we prayed and we prayed and... Um, and the Lord gave her a peace that that's what, you know, should be done. And so we, um, we, we ended up doing that. Um, and, and uh, of course, insurance doesn't cover that. So we had to find a doctor who would do that uh, out of our, and pay for it out of our own pocket. And so we did. And um, uh, didn't even know if she would get pregnant again because, I mean, it's, the odds aren't super high, you know, after you get that reversed. Um, but she did get pregnant again. And then she um, uh, had, um, 
a miscarriage that was fairly far in, uh, and that was kind of devastating to us. Um, and so, um, you know, we didn't know what would happen after that, but um, she did get pregnant one more time after that, and we were blessed with Troy. And so, um, so, so these little these little girls have an uncle that uh, I mean, Troy's been a great blessing to be an uncle to so many of these. Um, I mean, because the the distance in age is is what nine years between you Troy and the, and and Drew. Uh, so um, so anyway, um, I just wanted to share that because. Um, try to explain like spiritual, that, that in this situation, it's all about seeking God. It's all about seeking God's wisdom for your particular family um, and, and, and giving spiritual considerations uh, in, the, in this area um, as you seek the Lord together, husband and wife, because you're one, you know, it's not just what one person wants or the other person wants, it's together. Um, okay, so so God graced them with procreation. The second thing God graced Noah and his family with was an expanded menu. And aren't we thankful for that? Um, so to keep the peas going, let's call this provision. Okay, so this is another grace that all human beings benefit from. And okay, who do you, I mean, who do you think benefited from this the most? Mr. Atkins, right? <laughs> The Atkins diet, that guy's a millionaire today because God expanded the menu, right? Um, so anyway, Genesis 9-2 says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Um, I've probably gone fishing with my sons a, a handful of times. And uh, it's, it's not like fishing is uh, ever caught on as like a dad-son thing that we like really do. Um, and that's probably because we never really caught anything. So... Uh, it was really never any fun, really. So, um, and it's really not until this week that I saw this verse that I realized this is why we never caught anything because God put something in the fish that made them want to run away every time we went fishing. Um, but if you think about it, that's kind of fair, right? I mean, God graces us with the pleasure of being able to eat animals for food, but at the same time, he puts something in them that gives them an advantage to not make it easy for us to catch them. Um, except for when we cheat, right? And I, uh, um, there was a picture one time that my uh, brother-in-law and nephew posted on Facebook where his name is Dawson. And he was like holding up this buck with like, I don't know, 14, 12 point buck like this, and his dad took the picture or something. And I was like, wow, man, where did he, how did he get that? That was amazing. Well, I, 
you know, the next time we ran into him, I was talking to him about, like, where did you get that, you know? They cheated. They went to some place in Oklahoma that, like, has a fence around the acres, and, and they, like, take them out to the blinds, like, in a four-wheeler, and, I mean, the, the deer are captive, you know? They have nowhere else to go. So, um, I don't know if God meant for us to be cheaters like that. <laughs> um, so, the third thing we see that God graces them with is a prohibition. Um, verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its, its blood. So, I want to, children, I want to talk to you for a minute. Um, that's a big word, prohibition. Do you know what prohibition means? Who knows what prohibition means? Okay, I'll tell you. It's like a rule, okay? It's like a rule that says you can't do this, right? And how many of you like rules? <laughs> Not many, right? Yeah. Well, so God gave a prohibition or a rule and the reason that your parents give rules is to protect you from things that they know that could harm you that they've learned, but you don't know it yet. You don't know that this thing could be harmful. So they put a rule and they say, don't do that. Um, and so this is one of the things that I think is going on here. It might not be everything, but I think it's one of the things. So if man were to take part in tracking down animals like a tiger, and if we would like pounce on an antelope and then just start tearing into it, you know, with our teeth and um, eat it right there in the field, we'd more than likely probably get all kinds of infections from bacteria and um, parasites and who knows what else, because God didn't make us to be able to do that kind of thing, but he made animals to do it. So God knew this. So in my understanding, that is one of the reasons why he gave this prohibition. Um, other commentators also make a point that God gave this prohibition so that man would be respectful of the sacredness of life. And as God allowed man to now eat animals, he must do so in a humanitarian way, or in other words, distinguish from the way animals eat other animals that we, that we would not eat animals like animals eat animals. Um, the fourth thing we see is that God graced them with protection. Um, and this is in verse 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So what God is saying here is that if an animal takes a human's life, that animal's life should be taken. And he goes on to expand on this in the law when he talks about if, you know, if I owned an ox and I know that that ox is completely out of control and could kill people, um, but I did nothing about it. I just let it wander in the, around the neighborhood and just go gore anyone that, you know, it wanted to gore, then not only would the ox need to be put down, but I would need to be put down as well. Um, so God said that there is something so special about people and so special about his image that they bear that if life is taken, then their lives will be forfeited because of it. And God here is saying, 
And this is important because like, this is one of those things where the, we see the justice of God and sometimes we don't understand and we're like, well, that sounds harsh, but, 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 but hear me out. So God is saying, I am the judge and I've already spoken on this matter and, and he's laid it out here. He's like, you don't, you don't take a life or your life will be taken. Um, I've already spoken on this matter and man, you're going to be my instrument to mete out this judgment that I have already pronounced. Um, and he says three times, he says, I will require it. I will require it. I will require it. Um, he knows that we may have feelings towards a murderous individual, but what God is saying, I am telling you, I have a problem with what they did, and I want you to hasten my meeting with them, okay? Um, and I am commissioning you, man, as my instrument so that that person will face an immediate reckoning with me. So it's not, it's not I mean, it sounds like harsh, but really what God is saying is, I am the judge, and I need to have a meeting with that person, and I need to have a meeting with that person immediately, okay? Um, because their judgment time is now. Um, they have to meet in, in, in my courtroom, like, immediately. Um, so um, why did he create this protection? I think it's because he wants society to protect human life and to provide this deterrent to taking human life because he made man in his own image. Um, and that's a big deal. That is a, a very big deal to God. Um, is this hard? Yes. Um, I, was, I was laying in bed last night kind of thinking about this part, this section, and I was thinking like he didn't, he didn't have this instituted in the time of Adam and Eve, but like think about Noah, and Noah would have had to transmit this to his children. God, children, if anyone takes a life, then that life needs to be taken, and then they would need to pass that on, pass that on. I mean, there wasn't like the Ten Commandments yet, right? There wasn't the judges, there weren't laws, there weren't courts, there weren't anything. So, in Adam, if, if it was during Adam and Eve's time, you got Adam and Eve, you got Cain killed Abel. Someone would have to take the life of their son, you know? I mean, if they were to mete out this judgment. I mean, um, but so anyway, it's not an easy thing to do. It's not, it's not easy to follow through what God is asking here. Um, the fifth thing that we see in this passage as we look at verses 9 through 17 is that God reassured Noah and his family with a promise. And that's the last P if you're taking notes. Promise. So um, I was going to say let's read verses 9 through 17, but I don't think I will since I want to try to finish in five minutes. Okay, I'll just, I'll just tell you up front. In this passage, 9 through 17... God uses the word covenant seven different times. And um, um, I was looking this up in different translations, and actually I like the way the King James says it, um, because 
And the King James puts it in three different ways. It says in verse 9 that he says, I establish my covenant. In verse 11, he says, I will establish my covenant. And verse 17, he says, I have established my covenant. So what God is saying is past, present, and future. This is the work that he himself is initiating. He is initiating this covenant. He thought about it to do it. He is doing it. He will do it. And then he has done it. And I also want to note that God does not just select people as objects of the covenant, but also animals and literally every living creature. And if you look at that passage later, um, you'll see that he also refers to every living creature or every living beast or every beast or all. He refers to that seven times as well, these all-inclusive words, just so that we don't ever think that he left anybody out. I mean, I think he wants us to know that this covenant is for absolutely everybody, including all, all humans and all living creatures. Um, so we might look at this and say, why the repetition? God, why not just say this one time? I mean, am I hard of hearing? You know, um, you could have just said you're making a covenant with all living things and be done with it. Um, but again, I want us to take a minute just to put ourselves in Noah's shoes, okay? Um, and I thought this was going to be simple. I was just going to make a statement, but I never want to say stuff like emphatically if I can't say it dogmatically, right? So I was reading some commentaries, and lo and behold, you know, I can't say, make this statement dogmatically, so I'm like, okay, I better now, now need to explain it. But I've always believed that this was the first time it rained, okay, on the earth. I'm reading some commentaries. They're like, well, the Bible doesn't necessarily say that, okay? But, okay, I'll tell you why I think it's the first time it rained, okay? So I'm just going to make a statement about what I believe about the rain. I've always believed that the rain in Noah's time was the first time that people on the earth saw rain, and I still believe that. Um, but since some folks don't, I'm going to tell you that Technically, I can't say that this necessarily was the first rain because it doesn't specifically say that. Um, but I want to share why I lean strongly that way, okay? Because first of all, in Hebrews 11, when it talks about Noah, it says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So I feel like this being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. I mean, I think that has, it, the, those events could have been the flood or, um, but I feel like it's the rain and the flood combined. And then he built this ark. Um, so I suppose there could have been rain before the flood, but ever since I've known there to be rain, I mean, all the rain that we see, there's opportunities for flash floods or there's heavy rains or there's sometimes there's flooding. And um, you would think that if there was something like this before, the idea of someone building a boat wouldn't, wouldn't have seemed weird to people, you know? Um, so that's just, that's just me on that. Um, I think this passage and the repetition God, this is the, this is the biggest thing though to me. I think that the repetition God uses 
also makes me lean towards the idea that this is the first time it rained because I think God was providing, he was using a repetition to just reassure Noah and his family over and over again. Look, I'm making this covenant with you. I will establish this covenant with you. I have established this covenant with you. And he says it seven times. He could have just said it once, but it's almost like for someone who could be shell-shocked, like if it ever rains again, the first time it rains, Noah could be like, oh oh my gosh, what's going to happen? God was like confirming to him, I told you seven times that this covenant is established. You do not need to worry the next time it rains. So let's all suppose for a moment that we are in Noah's shoes and it might give us an idea of what the Lord is doing, might give us a sense of what's going on in Noah's heart. Um, Like if you were if you were to go up to Noah after the flood and ask him this question, Noah, what do you think of rain? He might have said something like this. I've only seen it once, and I didn't like it. Okay. Um, the one time it rained, I ended up in a boat for over a year with a bunch of animals. And not only that, the last time it rained, everyone on the planet died. Rain is very bad. It's the worst thing I've seen in 600 years. Um, But in all seriousness, his experience was pretty severe. So if you think about he would have ever felt in the future whenever he felt a drop of rain hit his head, had God not made this promise to him that he would never again destroy the earth with water, then um, I think that is why um, God repeated this seven times. So let's, let's look at the covenant in verse 11 real quick. Um, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay. Now, in verse 12 and 17, um, God talks about this sign of the covenant. Okay. And he spends five verses talking about it. And um, you know what? Hmm. to figure out what to do here. Um, I might just, um, I think I might, I might just close right now so that we can have some time of discussion and start here next week where we talk about the sign of the covenant and then go through the end of the chapter, even though it's going to really take two different concepts, but I, wanna, I want us to have time for children's church and, and a discussion time. So, um, so let me just, yeah. So it's, it's, it's really kind of cutting this off with the covenant um, uh, and not really giving you a, a really good conclusion. So I'm kind of like leaving you with a cliffhanger. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm gonna do that because I went way too long. So, um, so come back next week. Uh, please, and because uh, and, it's very significant about this sign that God gives and, um, and how he ties that to, um, I want to tie that to the new covenant, okay, the, the, um, the new covenant in, in the New Testament, the new covenant in Christ's blood, okay, 
Um, so let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, just all these reassurances that you gave to Noah, Lord, after the flood, after a very cataclysmic event um, that really, it's, it's pretty, it's almost impossible for us to put ourselves in his shoes and, and his family to, to go through something like that, to know what was going through their hearts and their minds, God. But you graciously gave them multiple reassurances, God, and um, that you would take care of them, that, um, that you were going to providentially provide for them, um, and obviously you did, God, and you kept the, the human race going, and um, Lord, I just, um, I thank you for that. Um, Lord, I pray that next week as we are able to look into um, what you did with this sign of the covenant, God, that we would, um, you'd show us how, how hopeful that is for us and how it was, provided so much hope to Noah and his family, God, that's, that's, that really is the icing on the cake for this covenant that you, this covenant and this promise that you promised his family. This sign has so much significance and it would have had, it would have had so much significance to them. Um, at the time. So Lord, I pray that just during this discussion time we have, Lord, we can, we can um, encourage one another uh, um, just as your spirit lives in each one of us, Lord, I pray that we would encourage one another uh, um, for where each one is at today, where you know where each one is at today and what each one needs to hear to be encouraged to become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.